is Alistair Madden and you're listening to the second episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and if you tuned in to the first episode, thank you for tuning into that as well. We were absolutely delighted with the response. We do genuinely appreciate it. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this episode as well. In this episode, we looked at the title race in Germany, we looked at the title race in Italy and in particular the title race in Italy falling into Milan's breathtaking comeback against AC Milan in the Milan derby. We also looked at matters in Spain and whether or not Real Madrid can push on and secure the La Liga title. We also had a look at the current state of affairs in France uh, with a particular focus on Dimitri Paez's form following his two captivating goals against Saint-Étienne and Toulouse, respectively. So, hopefully you enjoy the episode. Thanks again. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined once again by Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones. Rudy joins us from Patagonia and... Michael joins us from the equally exotic location of Lancaster. Um, he did correct me. I said that he was from Wolverhampton. He's not from Wolverhampton. He's from Lancaster. So apologies, Michael. But it's great to have you on again, Michael. How are you doing? Yeah, equally exotic places. Yeah, really good, actually. Um, just coming off the Milan derby last night, which I must say is one of the games of the season. So I can't wait to start talking about it. Yeah, delighted to, to, to have you. Again, um, Rudy, uh, how are you doing? How how is Patagonia treating you? The middle of nowhere, as you said. It is the middle of nowhere, but it's treating me very well. Last night, I sat myself down with a couple of locals to Racing Independiente in the Argentine division, big derby and big atmosphere. Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. So, um, Michael, you briefly mentioned uh, the Milan derby. There, um, it was breathtaking. I think it's fair to say. And I think that is as good a point as any to start with uh, for this episode. So, Michael, what what were your thoughts on the game and what do you think the implications of that are going to be for um, the Serie A title race? Um, yeah, it was, yeah. to start with, as I've already said, and as you've said, it, it was an absolutely breathtaking game. Both teams really went for it. It's probably the best Milan derby that's been for such a long time now. Inter, of course, going top of the league for the first at this stage in the season for the first time since 2010 when they did the treble under Mourinho mm-hmm. but yeah just in 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 terms of the game itself it, it was phenomenal in the first half we saw inter struggles come back to to haunt them a bit again um Udinese had caused them a couple of issues the week before Inter Milan did eventually get through it but yeah Milan were really good from the get-go it was a few tactical tweaks Rebic drifted out wide Kalanoglu was playing behind Ibrahimovic, who by occupying the centre-backs uh, was creating Kalanoglu all kinds of space. And Milan were re- a really effective unit in the first half. And as a result, also with a helping hand from Padeli, who was the uh, covering goalkeeper for Handanovic, who didn't quite cover himself in glory. Milan had the Watuna look by half-time with Ibrahimovic assisting and scoring. Yeah. During the second half, Milan's sort of flat approach to the game you just thought there was no real route back in it although they did start with a bit of a tempo just over five minutes in the ball bounces out to Brozovic yep. who I've enjoyed watching so much under Antonio Conte volleys home this 
fierce, fierce shot uh, past a hopeless Donnarumma. And it, from there, Inter Milan just didn't look back. The Vecino's goal was some nice play by Sanchez, but then um, another brilliant goal by De Rye. I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah. he literally gets his head down to about knee height before angling it past Donnarumma. And, you know, Donnarumma's a big goalkeeper. Yeah, he was nowhere near any of the goals. And Lukaku capped off a fantastic display by getting a fourth. It's blown the... It's blown the title race wide open, which I believe you know seems a bit silly to say, given all these teams are um, so close to each other, and we've been talking about this title race in Serie A. But that result is the probably the result for into this season, which has made everybody just take a step back and just be like, you know, people are starting to look at Inter now as maybe even favourites to win the title. And I don't think they've been in that. They've been you know commented in that way before. Yeah, um, Juventus, especially with their collapse against Hellas Verona, um, will certainly they're not even looking over their shoulders anymore. They're looking ahead of them, and Inter now have to push on. Yeah, um, I think it was quite encouraging. Uh, I saw on Twitter they were saying that uh, the Milan derby was very nearly sold out. Um, in the San Siro, it's probably one of the easiest tickets, um, as you were saying earlier in the day, Michael. To me, it's probably one of the easiest stadiums in Europe to get a ticket for. Um, considering how, how iconic a stadium it is, but it was almost packed to the rafters, certainly from what I've seen on Twitter. And I think um, that reflects a kind of revival of Italian football as a whole this season. I think people across Europe are maybe starting to take a bit more notice in the league now that Juventus aren't having it all their own way this season. You've obviously had the issues as well with Napoli, Ibra going back to Milan. Um, Michael, would, would, would you agree that... Um, it's it's a league that's perhaps on the up once again. Yeah, I think so. I think it's really close to overtaking La Liga at this rate. We've not in terms of you know your Rails and your Barca's, but a lot of the big teams are really contributing now to the yeah. league. Um, Inter Milan and AC Milan have been really mediocre over the past few years, and this was a, a derby that you know people were really looking forward to because they saw two teams on the up. Milan were on this great run. Um, coming into 2020, they've won five on the bounce before yeah. a draw prior to this defeat. And of course, they Milan didn't really do too much wrong in this game. They just came up against a formidable Inter side in the second half. Um, Inter Milan, that being said, Conte's, I think many people thought he would because they know how good a coach Antonio Conte is. Um, but yeah, Conte's just taken into Milan to that top level. And the yeah. league's just come a bit more open. One of the things that's put people off Italian football for years is the Juventus' dominance and it's not always been the greatest thing to watch them because they were just that much better than everyone else. And they're now weak, a lot of weaknesses that I'm sure we'll talk about um, over yeah. you know, this episode in the coming weeks with Juventus. Um, but yeah, it's it's really a league that people are starting to notice. Lazio's revival under Inzaghi this season, they've been a steady team for a few years now, but um, themselves being back in the title races. You know, they're another such a historic club in Italy that people are really, you know, uh, looking at them and wondering, yeah. you know, what will happen this season. And I'm sure it'll, it'll be, it's brilliant for Italian football um, for this season and beyond. Yeah. A quick mention, uh, two quick mentions. One for Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who became the oldest ever goal scorer in a Milan derby in Serie A history, uh, aged 38 years and 129 days. I saw Ibrahimovic play for LA Galaxy against New England Revolution last summer and he he wasn't actually the best player on the pitch. Carlos Heel, uh, once of Aston Villa, um, now playing for New England Revolution, 
uh, ran the show. But Ibrahimovic still exuded that class. Um, so he, he does still have it. He's, he's maybe um, he's, he's nearly 40 years of age, but he still just seems capable of having an impact on games. And that chance when it was 3-2 to enter and, and Ibrahimovic hits the post, that that's very fine margins. If that goes in, then it's it's the Ibra, the Ibra show once again. Uh, so just a quick mention for Ibrahimovic there. And also, um, Michael, young Daniel Maldini um, following in the footsteps both of his grandfather and his father. Um, his grandfather being Cesar Maldini, who made his debut for Milan in 1954. And Paolo Maldini, of course, being his father, who made his debut for Milan in 1984. So quite the legacy that the Maldini family have, have left on this great Italian club. Um, yeah, it, it is. I mean, um, one of the interesting things we'll have to see what happens is Daniel Maldini, the, you know, in Italian football, it's very common for shirt numbers to re- be retired, arguably more so than in other countries. And the number three shirt is retired at Inter Milan. Of course, that's a big shirt. Paolo Maldini, yeah. particularly, and Cesar both wore it during their times at the club for AC Milan. Um, now, it's been reserved in case one of the players makes a, makes a full breakthrough into the first team. Um, so one of the interesting things might be is that, you know, Daniel Maldini, very young at the moment, and he's done brilliantly to even get a first-team appearance. But is it going to be a bit more like a Zidane, Zidane's sons like Enzo that, you know, really just drift off? Or, you know, will Maldini be able to live up to his predecessors, which is no... Small challenge, um, but yeah, can't challenge. wait to see uh, how long it is until they judge whether he's fit to wear the shirt. Is it a season? Is it a title? We don't know. Yeah. Um, so moving on, um, because the title race, as we've already said, is really hotting up in Italy. Um, just one point separating Inter, Juventus and Lazio. Uh, and that, I suppose, was facilitated by uh, Juventus slipping up. Uh, Despite Ronaldo's record-breaking tenth uh, uh, consecutive match in which he scored for Juventus, um, despite Ronaldo's heroics, um, they still managed to to lose the game. Michael, didn't they? Yeah, it was a brilliant goal by Ronaldo. Uh, you look a bit of a one-two, some good movement on the halfway line before firing it past the Ravona keeper. Um, but yeah, what a comeback! Fabio Barini scoring the equaliser, running across. Um, the athletics traps around in the stadium with the fans um, before Pazzini scored a penalty past Chesney. Chesney once again didn't have a great game. One of the uh, big concerns for Juventus at the moment is Ronaldo's on this record-breaking run even for himself if he's scoring in 10 consecutive games. Um, yet this isn't, and Ronaldo's really, you know, this is the best he's looked since he's been at Juventus. But Juventus still um, are barely winning games. And, you know, it's now getting to the point where they're not winning games. Um, so, I mean, you could make a positive out of that and say, you know, when the other players step up, Juventus could be a really formidable team for the Champions League as well as Serie A. But also, what if Ronaldo drops off, then where are Juventus? You know, it really is. that. That's why this Serie A title race is so fascinating this season. But big uh, credit to Verona lowest wage bill in Serie A and um, yeah they've been a real surprise package this season yeah um, I think Juventus will need uh, the boost that um, they play Leon in the Champions League and Leon have after a good January they've had a really poor 
poor start to February. Um, and I think Juventus, surely they'll get through that and that, that might kickstart them uh, into life because they are in a title race. They haven't been in one. They haven't really been challenged um, for quite some time, Michael. Uh, so uh, does that, the ease with which you know they've won the title in recent years, do you think that uh, might come back to, to haunt them perhaps now, now that there is a genuine... Um, title push from both Lazio and Inter Milan or do you think that Juventus will still have enough in the tank to to win the title once again? Yeah, it's it's always hard to tell really because the at some point whenever it is in the future Juventus aren't, are going to lose the title to somebody so when that is, whether it's this season um, I think it could work against them now, I, you know my opinion's very much changed over the weekend that's how easily we can be swayed by, you know, just one or two games, but Inter Milan have uh, well, they have Napoli in the Cup midweek, but they have Lazio next Sunday in the evening fixture which at Lazio, which is a massive game for both teams. Yeah. Um, if Inter Milan get through that, I think the, men, you know, the mental pressure will be all on Juve to say, you know, keep up, keep up with us if you can. Yeah. And if just thinking if uh, Juventus were to fail to win the title for the first time in God knows how long, uh, would they be sticking by Sarri or is that the end for him, one and done? Um, it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit difficult to tell. I think the players with Sarri, always, you do have a few players that don't always buy into the system, but a lot of players do. I think a lot of players, although they liked Allegri, Allegri could be a bit of a distant figure sometimes. Sarri's very much on the training ground every single day. Um, but and the brand of football that Sarri's trying to promote, you know, it's well respected in Italy. The players maybe buy into it more than it was bought into at Chelsea, yet without the stature of player not implementing it as well. That will be a big concern to the board. And I think the board's question is does Sarri have the temperament to manage this Milan team over the next coming years? Um, I, I'd be surprised if Juve lost a title that they would stick with him. But I think it may be the best decision for them to stick with him, but we'll have to see what happens going forward. Yeah. Um, a quick word on um, two uh, teams, Michael, who are connected by an informed uh, individual in Musa Barro, um, Atalanta and Bologna. What do you have to say to Musa Barro's form? And do you think he will be welcomed back at Atalanta at the end of this, um, what is seeming like a very fruitful loan period. Yeah, I think Musa Barra will be welcomed back with open arms uh, after his after what he did for them this weekend. Uh, Atalanta, of course, came back to win against Fiorentina, but Musa Barrow on loan from Atalanta, as you said, Ali, scored twice against Roma, who are Atalanta's biggest top four rivals, in a 3-2 win. Musa Barrow, since he's come in, Bologna were on quite a dry run. They've since won three games on the bounce. Uh, first one was in a derby against Spal, came off the bench, scored a goal, was really instrumental in the game I watched uh, with them versus Brescia. Again, just really, he's a very direct player, he's a very raw player at this end, mm-hmm. he's only 21. It'll be a really interesting one. He, he certainly seems a player who could really um, fit into the Atalanta system for future seasons. It seems to be that's where his future lies. Um, in terms of the rest of the season, it's good news for Bologna. Looks like they could make a really strong end to this, have a really strong finish to the season. Um, and 
Barrow himself. It looks. I think he's maybe the most exciting transfer in Serie A this transfer window. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ibrahimovic aside. Mm. Yeah. Um, an excitement. I suppose both both clubs are going to benefit. Bologna currently sitting just outside the, the European places on thirty three points. Um, but obviously, you know, three wins in the last three, uh, and Musa Barrow um, in red hot form, looking good for them. Just a mention, um, I suppose, for Eden Dzeko at Roma, who, uh, when he scored in Roma's 4-2 defeat away to Sassuolo, became the seventh player in Roma's history to score at least 100 goals in all competitions. Um, Dzeko just seems to have been, have been around for ages. I remember like when he scored the, the goal to make it 2-2 against Queen's Park Rangers, which preceded the Aguero moment, of course, at the Etihad. Um, and that, that was 2012-2013. Uh, and he, and he's, 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 he's performing well at Roma uh, and 100 goals in all competitions. So despite Roma's dip in form, there is, I suppose, a positive there. Um, but looking more up towards one of those contenders for the title, Michael Lazio, um, unbeaten in the last 18 league games, uh, and they've never played as many matches without defeats uh, in their Serie A history, according to Opta. So they, they're in red hot form. Inter are looking good. Juventus have got Cristiano Ronaldo, who, who's capable of anything. Um, an exciting one to look to keep an eye on, certainly as the season goes on, Michael. Uh, if you've got, if you don't have anything else to add on Serie A, Michael, um, I think we will move on to talk about the Bundesliga. Yeah, I think um, apart from a quick mention for Lecce, who did brilliantly to hold on against Napoli, 3-2 victory there. Um, they pulled off some stunning results recently against them and uh, Torino, so they could be a bit more of a feature for our podcast in the coming weeks. Yeah, well, plenty for us to talk about as the weeks um, go on and as we near what hopefully will be uh, an excellent um, final day. Uh, so. That's all for Serie A. Up next is the Bundesliga. So the Bundesliga, and just as we have a title race in Italy, we also now have an exciting title race in Germany as well. Bayern Munich are top again after a period away from the, the, the top of the table, but they are now top and Dortmund despite their defensive inadequacies against Leverkusen, are also in the mix. And Leipzig showed their genuine title credentials as well with a disciplined and organised performance away at Bayern Munich without Konate as well. That could well have um, been a, a devastating blow for them, but they held out, they were disciplined, they were well organised. And while Bayern had chances, I think overall Julian Nagelsmann will be pleased um, with that performance. Um, the Bundesliga does produce so many entertaining games and I think anyone who watched the Leverkusen-Dortmund game will will attest to that. Uh, Michael, you watched the highlights. I, I watched it live and it, 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 was, it was chaotic. It was enthralling. It was end-to-end. There was a complete absence of any um, regard for the art of defending, but it, it made for quite the spectacle. There were some beautiful goals scored. Kevin Vollen, um impressing once again up front for Leverkusen. Harland, despite his heroics uh, in his first few games, was kept quiet somehow 
by the Leverkusen defence. Um, and of course, Erling Haaland, we should say, became the first player in Bundesliga history to score seven goals in his first three appearances in the competition. Um, and along with Jadon Sancho, who became the youngest player in Bundesliga history to net 25 goals, um, the pair are really... Um, the pair are really impressing and no doubt will, will, I know we mentioned this in the last podcast, but they will net Dortmund a huge um, amount of money in transfer fees, which is it's, it's a shame that they will move on, but they will at the end of the day move on. Um, coincidentally, Harland has supposedly has a 75 million euro release clause in his contract, which doesn't activate until summer 2022. So... Perhaps they'll sell him on for more than that before then, but I mean the early stages are that he he could go for huge money um, if he does go before that seventy five million euro release clause does activate. Um, I, I, I suppose we need to have a word for Bayern Munich. They were um, held to that draw by Nagelsmann's Leipzig on Sunday night, just hours before the Milan derby. Um, it was a wonderful evening of football uh, on Sunday with the Betis Barcelona game, which Barlow will no doubt talk about. And then we had the Milan derby as well. Um, and this, I suppose, Munich Leipzig game did perhaps pale into insignificance um, in terms of the lack of goals. But at the same time, it was an enthralling game to watch. Tactically, it was very good. I think Nagelsmann realised that they couldn't go. Uh, and, and be naive, they, they had to be organised, they had to be disciplined and they'll be delighted that they have kept out a Bayern Munich side who had the best attack in the Bundesliga with 58 goals scored after 20 rounds of fixtures and that was the joint best um, goal scored uh, tally at that point in the season since Werder Bremen in 1985-86 season. So I think um, Nagelsmann is still a coach who is learning. He's still very young, but he, I think, he showed his maturity. I think Leipzig, on the whole, showed their maturity, and they kept out the trio of Thiago, Müller, and Lewandowski, who in recent weeks had, had been free scoring. And Müller, coincidentally, um, following the one of our minds, had scored for three games in a row, and that was the first time he'd done that since November 2015. Which, when you think about how much he dominated on the national scene for quite some time uh, to think that this was the first time he'd scored three games in a row for his club uh, since November 2015 was was quite the statistic. Um, Michael, we spoke briefly before uh, coming on to record the podcast about Hertha um, Berlin. Uh, we spoke about how much money they spent. They spent 75 million euros in January, um, but things don't really seem to be working out for them. Jurgen Klinsmann, of course, took over, uh, and since he's taken over, they've only picked up 12 points from nine games. Um, uh, To to kind of put that into context, um, Klinsmann's predecessor, Ante Kovic, picked up 11 from 12 matches, so really, Klinsman was brought in as a, to try and improve matters and kind of um, really benefit, I suppose, from this new um, investment that was coming in. This you know fresh injection of, of of money in the January transfer market, and really, they were very poor against Mainz 
and a lowly minds at that as well. Um, I suppose, Michael, we've, we've mentioned Hertha Bell in there, but going back to Leipzig, it was a mature performance. Um, and you wanted a brief mention for the Hungarian stopper Gulacci. Um, yeah. Yeah, he made um he made an outstanding save towards the end of the game. Goretzka had been played through. It had it gone in, um, it looks like it would have been called back for an offside for Lewandowski. But it got me thinking about Galaxy because I remember him playing for the likes of Hereford and Tranmere. And even four years ago at the Euros, he wasn't even he was actually second choice for Hungary behind Gebo Karali, the yeah. famous goalkeeper in the sweatpants. And <laughs> I was just thinking between these two European championships, I don't think a player will have made as much of a transformation in their career as Galacci. Um, and he epitomised everything that they did well, you know, calm from the back. And yeah, just the brief one on Hertha Berlin as well. It'll be an interesting one. I mean, I've watched Piatek quite a bit in Italy this season. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's not replicated the form of last. If he can, you know, but Hertha Berlin aren't too much in a relegation fight no. at the moment, but a few more poor results than they easily could be. Yeah, so. they're, um, they're six points clear of the, the relegation playoff spot and also six points clear of the automatic relegation spot. I mean, it is quite a, an exciting relegation battle down at the bottom. But yeah, if, if Piatek can can hit the form that he showed last season, he scored against Schalke in the Deutscher Pokal and showed some promising signs. Um, I think Hertha Berlin should be, should, should be okay. They've signed... Asasia Bar, um, as as well from Stuttgart, who who will come in and, and shore up the the midfield, um, in the same way that I suppose Diego Demet has perhaps done at Napoli uh, in Italy. Um, so yeah, I think Hertha should be fine. Klinsmann, although at club level he hasn't really done it in recent years, he's more known for his kind of his his exploits in the national scene, but. I think he has the experience there and with that injection of cash, they have the cash that clubs around them do not have to spend. I think, yeah, I think they should be fine. Um, I think as well, just on Hertha there, they appointed, obviously, Ante Kovic in the summer. Yeah. And he was replacing Paul Dorde, who had done like a fantastic job for the first couple of years. And I think he was well-beloved at the club. Yeah. And then just last season, his as happens with most managers, really. His message got tired, players weren't responding as well, and they've just not really recovered from his sacking. He was very much a long-standing figure at the club and well-loved, and they've not really found an identity, I don't think, since he left. So it'll be up to Klinsmann to see if he can impose an idea on that team. Yeah. Um, I think... Well, you mentioned it about ideas that become tired, and it's it's a theme that we're seeing more and more um, in the modern game. You saw it with Pochettino, um, in particular at Tottenham Hotspur. Brilliant manager, but but dressing rooms become become stale, I suppose. Um, I players start to to tire of a manager's um, approach, and yeah, I, I think it's something that we do see a lot um, in in the modern game. Do we have anything else to add on the Bundesliga, guys? Um, not from me. Paolo? No, nope, that's all good for me. I'm happy yep. with that. Um, I mean, I suppose all that's left to say on Bundesliga is that it is shaping up to be, as, as we said in Italy, a really exciting title race. And finally, in the Bundesliga as well, we seem to have a genuine title race on our hands. 
um, Dortmund, Bayern Munich and Leipzig all going hammer and tong. And you also have um, München Gladbach, who, of course, have a game in hand. If they win their game in hand um, against Cologne, then they go to within one point of Bayern Munich. You would have Munich on 43, Gladbach on 42, Leipzig on 42 and Dortmund on 39. Um, a quick mention um, before we move on from Bundesliga uh, for the fact that München Gladbach's game against Cologne was postponed on Sunday as a result of Storm Kira, or I think the German version is Storm Sabine. I saw some people referring to it as. But anyway, Mother Nature um, put paid to the Gladbach game. And that was the first Bundesliga game that's been postponed since 2011. So um, a little uh, start for you before we move on. And we're going to move on to La Liga, uh, which there's so much to talk about, Barlow. So up next, it's La Liga. La Liga has produced the goods once again. Uh, where, where do we start, Rudy? Um, perhaps a word for Hitafi. Um, Jose Bordelas took over uh, in 2016 with um, Hitafi sitting second bottom of the second division in Spain, but he's instigated quite the turnaround, hasn't he, Rudy? It's phenomenal. I don't. I don't really think you can understate his effect on the Hatafe team. Like, like you say, they started off second bottom of the second division, and Hatafe are not a big club. They they're struggling to get ten thousand uh, a game, like not too long ago. And so, yeah, he's brought them up to the divisions last year. Finished a point outside the Champions League, which was phenomenal. And as I say, I don't. There's no. This is on Leicester kind of level terms of what he's yeah. doing with that team because it's unprecedented. Like how how well a job he's doing, considering especially now in the era of money that we are, that with big teams able to sign players for bigger money, it is just outrageous. And at the weekend they destroyed what is a decent enough Valencia side that remember finished top of their group in the Champions League. Absolutely waltzed through them. 3-0 could have been a lot more. And yeah, they are on phenomenal form at the moment. Yeah, um, I think uh, if we could have a little word for um, Jorge uh, Molino, uh, Molina, Molina, Molino, Jorge Molina, um, 37 years young and still producing the goods. He's he's definitely producing the goods. I mean, we we seem to have a bit of a succession. It's as if uh, La Liga's following Serie's lead <laughs> um, in having veteran strikers scoring lots of goals. I mean, we've had Adariz, who's been yeah. banging in goals for many years now. But um, yeah, now we've got Jorge Molina, who's 37, obviously went down to the second division with Hatafe, and he's back up there now. And at the weekend, scored a phenomenal goal, received the ball in the box, Quick touch, sent two Valencia players the wrong way and then slotted home. And uh, it, he is a big part of the renaissance that Bordelas has instigated there because he's he's an old striker. He's uh, It's a bit of a cliche, but good touch for a big man. Yeah. Intelligent player, but he, he fights hard and he embodies what this Atafe team is all about with him. And yeah, the, their strike forces, they, they've got a bit of a reputation as being a physical side. Mm-hmm. Again, to make a sort of comparison that 
listeners might be more familiar with, they are uh, La Liga's Burnley in that sense. But to mm. categorise them as just a physical route one side is to do them a great injustice because they are they're very good. They're very organised at what they do. They're direct, but they're playing some good football as well. And Jorge Molina's goal, as I say, is evidence of that. Who's yeah, on fine form. Yeah, and and, and arguably, um, you could say that they're the second best team in Madrid, uh, given Atleti's struggles recently. Yeah, they're sitting sitting third, three points ahead of Atletico Madrid, and uh, Simeone's team. They don't have a huge amount of margin for error because uh, Sevilla are also on the slide, but it's not unthinkable that they could slide out of the Champions League if they're not careful. Mm-hmm. Um, on Tafé, um what will be really interesting is that they face Ajax in the Europa League round at 32 in a couple of weeks, so we're going to see a big contrast in styles there. Um, I, I'd really fancy Hetafe actually for this one after seeing what Valencia did to Ajax earlier in the season. Definitely, I think they've got they've got a fighting chance. I mean, we should take into account that they it's they're not as experienced in Europe as Ajax were, and obviously they have the Champions League semi final behind them last year. But if they play the way they have been, there's no reason to think that they couldn't um, put this Ajax side out because I think on their day, I mean, Real Madrid and Barcelona are going to struggle against Tafe, and so I don't see why they couldn't. Couldn't be a side like Ajax either. Yeah. Um, well, having spoken about Hitafi, we should perhaps turn our attention to what um, was a quite brilliant round in the new look Copa del Rey. Barlow, it was brilliant, wasn't it? Well, Sid Lowe from The Guardian termed it as the best week of Cop- best round of the Copa del Rey ever. And I think it is hard to disagree with it because all four quarterfinal ties were won by the underdogs. It started on Tuesday, Tuesday evening, Granada at home to Valencia, which is part of this new format where the smaller team receives the larger team up until the semi-finals. Um, and Roberto Soldado, La Ley del X, they call it in Spain, which basically means the law of the X. Yeah. Uh, coming back to haunt his former team with a brace in the last minute, scoring a penalty to stick out Valencia. Yeah. And then on Wednesday night, um, another big shock, Mirandes, second division side. Again, a very, very modest side, not a big team. Spent most of their years between the second division and the third division. And they um, demolished the Villarreal side 4-2, which I, I don't think many people saw coming, but it's now their third La Liga side that they put out. Yeah. And then Thursday night, a huge night. It was the two Basque teams against Madrid and Barca. Yeah. Firstly came Sociedad against Madrid. 4-3 at the Bernabeu, Sociedad. We're 4-1 up. Alexander Isak, I think, has now announced himself on the big stage as one of Europe's big prospects again. Uh, he netted a brace and looked absolutely outstanding against Madrid. And then Madrid came back to 4-3. Ramos nearly equalising in the last minute, as Ramos so often likes to do. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Sociedad surviving. Yeah, and then uh, on to yeah. the carry on. Sorry, Ali. Yeah, I was just I was going to ask about about Isaac, this um, player who who as, as you said has announced himself on the big stage. Um, just how important um, do you think he will be? He will be for Sociedad in the long run. Is he, did he sign from Dortmund, didn't he? In the the summer there, or am I mixing myself up? 
he did, he signed from Dortmund, and I think initially he was brought in as a sort of backup slash prospect, yeah, um, to eventually replace Willie and Jose, who was linked with a move to Spurs. But he's yeah. he's hit the point now where he's played Jose out of the team, and he does look he's got he's quick, he's strong, he's got, he's obviously got plenty of technical ability, and he's I think he's sort of growing into growing into himself as a footballer now, sort of yeah. learning well, think- to use his physical and technical ability. Um, against better pros, um, obviously didn't have so much success at Dortmund, and I think maybe he's coming into his own just now. Yeah, and I, I think, um, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the Spanish newspapers labelled him the, the Swedish Ibra, which seems a bit um, strange. But I, I, I mean, they're obviously um, really excited in Scandinavia by this. There's so many exciting young players coming through from Scandinavia these days. Uh, and Isaac just seems to be the latest in a long line. Um, so an interesting player to keep an eye on as the season develops and indeed as his, his career develops. Um, the, the final um, game and what, what, what you know, we've, we've said was quite a quite brilliant week in the Copa del Rey saw Bilbao play Barca, didn't it, Bilbao? Yep, so Bilbao, Barca, um, La Catedral, Nuevo San Mames is... Uh... Bilbao's new stadium and it was a phenomenal atmosphere deafening yeah. sound from the fans as as it tends to be against the big two for in Bilbao and it, it was a very tight game first half, Barca on top for the first 20-25 minutes yeah. and then Bilbao sort of broke the game down a bit, bit. So they, they did have a couple chances but um, certainly grew into the game a bit more and then second half Barca came out again, dominated play for the most part but Athletic as ever, they they will fight tooth and nail. They will grittily uh, hold on to the match if they can. And uh, just before just before the end of the match, as it looked like it was going to extra time, Messi passes up a huge chance to send Barcelona through. Unai Unai, Unai in the goals in goals for Athletic Club, uh, keeping him out with a massive save. And then I think both teams had almost given up on the tie uh, until the extra time at least and uh, ball swung in from the right hand side and Yaki Williams glances home and pandemonium in the stands for Bilbao it was okay. chaos Yeah, um, you mentioned Unai Simon in the Bilbao net and obviously with Bilbao selling Kepa for I think was their record fee um, correct me if I'm wrong on that one Barlow um, you're thinking it's a huge loss, but then Unai Simon comes in and against Barcelona, he was he was brilliant. But also um, a, a certain member of that backline who Bilbao will no doubt be hoping to tie up on a longer term contract, Unai Nunez. Um, what is the situation with his contract, Barlow? And do do we think that he he will sign on again? I I think I would be inclined to say that he would sign on. Bilbao obviously have a certain pool of players that they can sign and so they have plenty of money to give to their own their own players and I would yeah. expect to see him sign a new contract with a massive release clause as tends to happen with Basque players. Yeah. I mean the, yeah. there's no reason for them not to break the bank to keep him there if they think that he's got the potential. Yeah, there was a moment with Unai Nunez where it was, he, he, he tackled um, Leo Messi and he just made it look so effortless but it was Messi in that um, 
way that you always see him just gliding through the defence and you're thinking he's he's going to shape up and shoot here and, he, and he's probably going to, despite his recent, um, can you call it a drought? I don't think you can, but still, um, you're thinking he's going to score here and then Nunez produces a brilliant challenge. Um, so yeah, him and Unai Simon in, in the nets um, and nets for Bilbao uh, shaping up um, to be really... Um, exciting players, if you can call defenders. I think you can call defenders exciting. Um, Bilbao have got a couple of them on their hands. Um, moving on from... the, Do you have anything else to add on the Copa del Rey, Barlow? Um, I remember you mentioned the, the significance of the fact this is the first time that none of Barcelona, Valencia or Real Madrid have appeared in the semi-finals of the Copa del Rey since 1994. And the new format has, I'm sure, um, facilitated that. Would, would you agree, Bao? Hundred uh, percent, I think. And I think it was probably long overdue that the Copa del Rey had some sort of uh, restructuring to yeah. uh, rebalance things a bit, because yeah. it was hitting the point where Barcelona and Real Madrid were in the final or winning it every year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just lastly to mention on the on the Copa del Rey. Uh, Sociedad um, and Bilbao got drawn apart in the semis which yep. leaves us with the mouth-watering prospect of a All-Basque final for the first time in history Yeah, no, it, that would be and of course the the um, Copa del Rey final set to take place all the way down in Sevilla which just seems a bit geographically baffling um, if we do have if we do indeed have an all-Basque final. But if, if that does happen, it's going to be a brilliant final and I'm pretty sure a lot of eyes will be on that. So, having looked at the Copa del Rey, um, there is the pressing issue um, of Kike Setien and Barcelona. Barlow, what do you have to say to Eric Abidal, Leo Messi, Leo Messi's 27 shots without a goal uh, and the injury crisis that, have left, that has left the Catalonian side with only 14 fit first-team players. What do you have to say to it? Well, I mean, as, similar to the Valverde issue, actually, there's there's two levels to deal with. There's Kike Setien and his own management, and then there's the institutional management of the team. So for those of the, those that um, aren't aware or weren't quite sure what happened in midweek, Eric Abadal gave two interviews, and uh, during those interviews, he... He said that some of the players weren't exactly sat, uh, happy with Ernesto Valverde and more or less cited them as one of the reasons that Valverde got sacked, to which Leo Messi, within 90 minutes um, of these articles seeing the light of day, highlighted this phrase and replied more or less saying, don't tar the players, um, either name names or... Uh, don't speak at all because otherwise you're tarring all the players with the same brush and you're making out like it's our fault. We take we take responsibility for what happens on the pitch, but the sporting directors have to take responsibility for their own decisions. Yeah. And uh, anyone, anyone who knows Barcelona will know that that was huge news. Messi rarely speaks out and so it was meltdown and Abadal more or less just hung on to his job this week. Yeah. Just a quick one. Is there? Um, do you think there's any possibility of Messi leaving? There's obviously anytime Messi does speak out, um, many people say it's the opportunity to publish a story about him leaving. Is there any truth in that? 
He does have a contract clause, which means that he can decide to leave for free um, at, during any summer during his contract. The common, the common knowledge, the common sort of opinion seems to be that he won't. He has repeatedly said that he wants to finish his career in Barcelona, but the more that this board and sporting direct directorates continue to um, prohibit from from winning a Champions League or giving him make it harder for the team, there is there's a small chance that he will have a, he will get fed up of it and decides that he's better off spending the last two three years of his. Um, prime in his career at a different club yeah um Pep Guardiola was asked about it in one of his press conferences at Manchester City and he said that it's his wish that Messi remains at Barcelona but I think if there was even the slightest chance that Leo Messi would would come to the Etihad Stadium then Guardiola would surely take him in an instant I mean there was people doubting on Twitter that Messi Messi would be able to produce in the Premier League and you're thinking really really are you that Naive. That, I think it's the I mean, only that, thing people have left to cling on to now. If, yeah, I think. Know, yeah, I think people who don't like him. Yeah, or or people who who are too busy clinging to the fact that every other league other than the English Premier League is somehow a farmers league. Um, which uh, yeah, so I I think if Messi was to come to the Premier League, he would absolutely um dominate. Um, I think the likes of Phil, Phil Jones up against. I mean, so, sorry, Phil. I mean, I feel like he's always the butt of the joke, but if Phil Jones up against Leo Messi, it would, it, it would be a shame. I think it would be. Uh, there would be no need for it. Just, just like, do you know what, Phil? Like, we'll we'll, we'll give the other team a three 0 win, and and you can save yourself the humiliation. I don't think Harry Maguire would get on too well against me. I, I, oh, it, it would be devastating. It would be nightmarish for defences. But I mean. For me, if if Messi was, I I wouldn't want him to leave Barcelona. Um, I wouldn't want him to leave Spain. I think it would be fantastic if he could go through his whole career at the new camp. But if he was to go to another league, I would I would love to see him, you know, in in Syria, um, for a kind of one last battle with Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, but that's that's food for thought, Barlow. Um, there are other problems at Barcelona. Um, none more so than this failure to sign a striker, um, which has left Barcelona a little bit short in attack, hasn't it? Yeah, so, well, Messi saying that the sporting director should take responsibility for their for their actions. And like I say, it's been chaos in the club all January, more or less, because they failed to sign Rodrigo. They basically declined to pay his release clause from Valencia. And then they were searching frantically for a striker. And there's the remarkable story of uh, Cedric Bakambu, who, formerly of Villarreal, decent striker, pacey, strong up front, got the call. His agent said, you might be signing for Barcelona. So he gets on a flight to Barcelona. Um, he's, cha- he's changing flights um, in the terminal, and his agent calls him to say, you're not going to Barcelona. So in the space of an hour and a half, Barcelona had called the agent um, with the, with signing Bakambu in mind and then decided not to sign him within the next 90 minutes, which more or less sums up their their approach to signing a striker. And as you say, it's really left Barcelona short up front. 14 first-team players. Ansu Fati has been playing a lot of minutes under Setien. Yeah. Um, Copadel Ray, Sergio Roberto started on the right hand side of a front three, and he did so again 
at the weekend against Betis. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I think one of the big big issues for Setien is that Messi normally solves so many problems, but like you say, he's on a small drought and that's that's really hindering Barcelona because although he's got five assists in the last two games, the games that they have they have lost, they really miss Messi's goal scoring ability. Yeah, and I mean the chance that, that you mentioned earlier, which Unai Simon saved excellently. I mean, surely you 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 put so much money on on Leo Messi to score that there. It's the typical chance that Messi just opens up his his body and then guides it beyond the keeper and makes it look so easy. So yes, he is providing the assist, but a, a, a slight concern for Barcelona because they do find themselves three points behind Real Madrid, um, and they do find themselves with only fourteen. Um, fit first team players um, but there is cause for optimism uh, in the form of Ansu Fati who as we were discussing earlier Barlow, um, became the youngest player to score a brace in La Liga in the 21st century aged just 17 years and 94 days the record was previously held by Juanmi Jimenez um, who scored against Real Zaragoza in September 2010 um, so I was looking into Juanmi's career. If, if, if Ansu Fati is to follow Juanmi's career path, um, he'll have an uninspiring spell at Southampton um, before ending up at Real Betis via Real Sociedad. Um, but something tells me that Fati's destined for for bigger things. Paul. Yeah, he's been the one, one of the few bright sparks in a very, very great season at Barcelona, and I think he is so young. He's seventeen years old. It's important just to keep his feet on the ground and he's playing well he's working hard he seems to seems to be doing well under Setien who who likes him and who seems to trust him but like we say we've seen it with so many players Freddie Adu Theo Walcott who burst onto the scene and it's it's really it's tricky to keep doing it and once you've got that much publicity I think Theo Walcott's done a little bit better than, than Freddie Adu, though. Like, um, well, he's really not That's also the true. expectation. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, but as, as young players, it's like this pressure on a young individual. But I think Fatty is, um, I think he'll be in good hands at Barcelona. Messi is uh, an excellent mentor for him. So, yeah, Andrew Fatty, cause for optimism uh, in an otherwise bleak season, as you say, Barlow. Um, Across in Madrid, just a brief mention um, on the uh, form of Madrid, the defensive form. Thibaut Courtois, of course, has just been named uh, La Liga Player of the Month, um, which for him is it marks quite the turnaround because he had a difficult time at the start of his um, Real Madrid career. Um, but, but yeah, Real Madrid, superb defensively. And going forward as well, four goals um, away to Osasuna, Barlow. Do you think they have what it takes to to run away with the title? Uh, definitely, I think Zidane the 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 job that Zidane's done has been phenomenal, and I think many people, myself included, had their doubts about him as a as a manager, at least in a tactical sense. During his first spell in Madrid, he had a phenomenal squad, but since since then, Bale's obviously. Spent a lot of time injured and declined slightly. Ronaldo's gone. Benzema's two, three years older since he had that treble Champions League winning team. And now he's he's transitioned the team. He's made them solid defensively. And he's 
he's also transitioned it to a sort of midfield first team, Casemiro and Valverde. Yeah. Running running the sides. And then Furlan Mondi, he's sort of turned into a world class left back in the last three, four yeah. months. Uh, I was, and, uh, yeah. I was looking at it and, and the difference when Furlan Mondi is in the team and when Marcelo is in the team at left back is is, is staggering. Like I think He'd only conceded maybe three goals and fell Mendy's X amount of minutes. And then in roughly the same uh, period of time that Marcelo had been playing, he'd conceded three times as many goals. So I think, um, you know, you highlighted it uh, when we were talking earlier, Mondi and Casemiro. You, you saw when they took Casemiro out the side against Sociedad, they, they crumbled and, and Marcelo was playing that day as well. I don't think that's a coincidence to you, Battle. Not at all. I think, yeah, Casemiro is the heartbeat of this Real Madrid side and it's mm-hmm. it's staggering almost how a Real Madrid side could be sort of run by a defensive first midfielder, yeah. defensive midfielder, and it's credit to Zan the way he's changed his team around because he doesn't have the attacking firepower that he used to have, but yeah. similarly, I think they will need... Certainly if they're to make a run at the Champions League, they'll need Eden Hazard back and they'll need him to start to hit a bit form soon, otherwise they might struggle to score enough goals to win a Champions League or yeah. at least challenge for it. Yeah. Well that that um face off between Guardiola City and Zidane's Real Madrid promises to be um an exciting one um in the Champions League. Um moving on, Barlow, just a brief the briefest of mentions because we have spoke about La Liga quite extensively. Um but Hatem Ben Arfa has signed for Violin. Um and there was a bit of light controversy, I suppose, with with his number choice and his antics at his unveiling photo shoot, wasn't there? Yes, Ben Arfa, who famously a good character in the Premier League as well, chose number three because of its aesthetic beauty, according to him. Yeah. And also refused to head the ball um, on request of the cameraman at Vidalid, uh, because it might ruin his hair. And uh, I think we talk about footballers' egos getting the better of them a lot, but that might actually be the case here. Yeah, no, I think um, I, I, ben, he's a glorious football player, but he's so frustrating had him, Ben Arfa. Um, the one um, defining memory I have, him, I have of him from his time at Newcastle was that wonder goal that he scored against Bolton in 2012 when he ran from his own half straight through the middle of the Bolton defence, made it look effortless, and it was just... It was just Ben Arfa as brilliant best. So if, if he can reproduce that for violated, then well, who knows? Um, perhaps they can um, shoot up. But they, they're sitting eight points clear of the uh, relegation zone just now, and perhaps with a sprinkling of Ben Arfa magic, they they can um, push up to be a little bit more comfortable. Paulo, do you have anything else to add on La Liga? No, nope, that's all for me. Thank you very much. Okay, well up next it's Ligan. So, Ligue 1, and I think the best place to start in France has has to be uh, the the brilliant form of Dimitri Payet. Um, conveniently, in a Euro season, just as he seems to always turn up when there's a major international tournament looming at the end of the season, he has done so once again this year. But um, I think a lot of people thought when he left West Ham that that was him. He was, yeah, that was him um, finished. But he, for this season for Marseille, he's he's been brilliant. Um, a quick 
statistic for you. He has provided 81 assists since the start of the 2007-2008 league and season. That's 81 assists in league and and that's more than any other player in that period. Uh, he's also Marseille's joint top scorer um, in league and this season. And he has, in the last two games, produced two moments of magic which have been game-defining. Uh, Michael, you watched the game against Saint-Étienne. Uh, and I watched the highlights. I didn't manage to watch the game live. But there was a quite extraordinary moment of individual genius from Pai, the sort of, of genius that we became accustomed to when he was performing week, week out for West Ham under Slavin Bilic. Um, and, and the goal, I, I'm going to say that he means it, to set himself up and then the awareness. Stefan Ruffier is one of the best goalkeepers in, in France. You could, maybe we can argue one of the best goalkeepers in, in, in Europe. Um, and he is completely outfought, completely bamboozled by this effort. Yes, he should do better. He shouldn't be beaten at his near post. But I think he meant it. Michael, do you think he means it or is it just a fluke? I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say, I won't go all the way in saying it was a fluke because I'm not sure how capable of that Dimitri Payet is. I think he means most things he does. But yeah. Yeah, the goalkeeper's positioning is terrible and it does give quite a, such a clear angle for a shot, even though it is narrow. I'm yeah. not sure. I think he's gone. I think he's gone to hit it sort of in front of the goal line, maybe a player's going to attack it. Um, but in terms of the way it went in and the sort of aesthetics around it, I wouldn't quite go as far as saying that's exactly what Payet meant to do. Yeah, um, I think, well, if, if we can maybe agree to disagree on that one, but there was no doubt that he made his finish against Toulouse at the Velodrome. Uh, at the weekend, a quite brilliant goal once again. Buena Sar does brilliantly to tee him up, and then Paye just in that sort of angle when it's on his right foot and he's got the kind of curve there. Absolutely no chance for the goalkeeper. And you know, you, you look at it, and it's one of these goals which I, I think better than uh, the goal against against Santetti, and purely because there's absolutely no doubt that he means it. Absolutely no doubt whatsoever that he means to. Um, bend this one past the goalkeeper. I think it just sums up how important Pai has been. And, and, and Andre Villas Boas has done a brilliant job at um, Marseille. Um, they've not lost since they were turned over 4 0 by PSG um, in October. They've been in this really impressive run. They're eight points clear in second place. Champions League football looks like it is finally going to be coming back to this huge French club. Uh, but Villas Boas was asked, Are you two? dependent on Payet and he said well you know you could say that Barcelona are too dependent on Messi you can say that Juventus are too reliant on Ronaldo I think he actually said Real Madrid were too dependent on Ronaldo when he was there but he was say, saying that if we have to be reliant on Payet then so be it he's, he's a special player his attitude at times maybe slightly questionable but he has shown himself this season um, yes there are the Euros looming but all, all being told, I mean, Pai would have been a part, he must be devastated inside because had it not been for his injury in that um, Europa League final um, just before the World Cup, he would have been a part of that World Cup winning side. So he'll no doubt be out to kind of make an impression this summer and rediscovering um, lost form, some, some could say. Um, um, yeah? I was just going to say, I mean, I don't want to take away too much from Villas-Boas, but what you were saying about his comments on Real Madrid, 
And they do strike me as a little bit rich because this is a manager whose most successful periods in his managerial career, Porto with the likes of James and Falcao, Tottenham with Gareth Bale and Marseille with Dimitri Payet. Certainly there is a theme of yeah. a one, you know, a, a real talisman carrying the team. So it would be interesting to see how they'd do long term without him. Yeah. See, do you know the thing um, what always baffles me? I always, like, in my head, Andre Villas-Boas is just like the Portuguese Tim Sherwood. Um, obviously, he's done a lot more with his career than Tim Sherwood, but I think because they both have the Tottenham <laughs> connection, and they don't even look alike, but just for some reason, there's a split second in my head. It's like that. That's just the Portuguese Tim Sherwood, but obviously, I'm, I'm doing Villas-Boas a huge disservice there. Um, he's done a brilliant job at uh, Marseille, because... Uh, it's a, was it a poison chalice? Perhaps it was a poison chalice before he took over there. But they, they have been absent from the Champions League for quite some time. And you know, they, they're an institution, Marcy. They're, they're a huge side, and they should be um, on the big stage. And hopefully next season they will be. Um, yeah, just a brief um, mention for Claude Puel and Santetti, and they got off to a perfect start under Claude Puel. Four wins and six at the start of his. Uh, Santetti and Rain, but uh, they've just been in a horrible, horrible run. They are currently sitting um, just four points clear of the relegation playoff. Um, only won one of the last seven games, and well, it just I mean, it didn't. It went okay for him at Leicester, but it doesn't seem to be working for him at Santetti. And after that perfect start, um, but one manager who does seem well, I say seem, does seem to be turning things around, is Roberto Moreno at Monaco. Um, in his first three games in charge, they conceded three goals. They lost 3-1 to um, Strasbourg, but they have shown signs of turning it around. They won against Angers, and then they won against... I say they won against Angers. It was a very narrow win. 1-0, Stefan Jovic scoring. They didn't look convincing at all, and that was in the municipality um, and then they have a late late comeback against an Amiens side that it looked absolutely exhausted uh, and all of a sudden things are looking a little bit more rosy um, for Monaco, they're now only five points off of a European spot uh, and, and with the talent, Wissam Ben Yedder um, currently top scorer with 16 goals You know when you've got a player like him in your team um, regardless of any weaknesses at the back, regardless of any lack of cohesion or apparent lack of cohesion. Um, yeah, I think Monaco will, will fancy their chances. Um, I do want to just briefly mention Glenn and their quite brilliant um, youth academy. Uh, they have, yeah, um, there's a player who, Bao, you are particularly interested in, that's Eduardo Camavinga. You're particularly interested in him, aren't you? Yeah, just wondering, he burst onto the scene at the start of the season after he started against PSG and looked very comfortable at that level. He was obviously the hot prospect and Man United were rumoured to be signing him as they are rumoured to be signing everyone who was ever on the market. But uh, how's he doing? Is he still starting? Is he yeah, still he, that prospect? Yeah he's, he's ar- yeah, he's arguably one of the first names on Julian Stefan's team sheet. The thing is, Stefan came through the the ranks as a coach with like the youth academy and then the reserve team. So he has this, you know, ongoing relationship with Kamavinga. He has this faith 
Um, and it's, it's well it's well placed for Kamavinga. Um, it's, it's crazy when you look at it and you think he's only 17, but no, he's one of the first names on uh, team sheet. Um, and also uh, another player who who impresses me. Um, he's 19 years of age. He's young. Gaboho, um, the Ivorian uh, um, player. He he's another individual who's coming through at Rennes, and they're just producing talent after talent. They of course produced Usman Dembele. Um, just they have had a little bit of a dip in the last couple of games. They had a, a an emotional win over Nantes. They won three two um, in in the derby in the Breton derby. Um, Kamavinga did not have his best game. He was fault for both of the goals, actually. But overall, he, his contribution to the team uh, well beyond his years. Now, not that I want to make you feel old, but Eduardo Kamavinga, I, I'm going to make you feel old anyway. Eduardo Kamavinga was born on the 10th of November 2002. Now, my first memory of watching football was the World Cup final between Brazil and Germany and Japan when Ronaldo um, just lit up the, the World Cup and that was one of my earliest memories. I'd been swimming in the morning and I hadn't worn goggles, so my eyes were um, filled with chlorine. I remember trying to watch this um, World Cup final through bleary eyes and on this chunky television. Um, but at that point, Eduardo Camavinga wasn't even born, and now he's um, producing week in, week out for a Rennes side that have a real chance of either Champions League football or Europa League football. So, yeah, didn't want to make you feel there. Apologies if I have, but just they, they have a recipe for success. I would point out, however, that the REM president or ex-president now, Olivier Letang, has been sacked. Uh, now, some French newspapers were reporting that the reason for that centred around the very man himself, Eduardo Camavinga. Apparently, Letang was in negotiations with Real Madrid to try and instigate a sale in the summer, a big money uh, sale in the summer. Um, the owners um, were not too happy, to say the least, and Olivier Letang, who had um, played a massive role with Rennes, and I think you know a couple of the players in Julian Stefan's team were not happy and, and publicly voiced their um, disapproval of the sacking, but um, the owners obviously decided that they, they weren't happy with him trying to sell Camavinga, they maybe want to keep hold of Camavinga for as long as possible. His contract runs until 2022 um, and if Ren can keep a hold of him and Jan Gaboho and Julien Stéphane, then you know, they, they, they're in a good place. So, do we have anything else to to say um, about French football? Yeah, just wanting to ask about the incident um, which just came prior to Monaco's recent revival in yeah. all the drama oh, that unfolded. It looked like their winning run would actually start a bit earlier against Nimes, but it all went to shame. And Martins, of course, got sent off in the protest, but could be yeah. off with a lengthy ban now, I believe, Ali. Yeah, so I think um, it's important that he does receive a lengthy ban because you, ha- you have to send out a message here. Um, the game, Monaco against Nimes, Monaco took an early against Nimes, sorry, um, Neem had been really not performing well at all. They were in the relegation zone and with Sam Benny there, scored once again and you're thinking, true, it's just going to be a routine win now for Roberto Moreno. But it all went um, a little bit to, to pot when Bakayoko gets sent off and then following that, Gelson Martins also gets sent off for pushing the referee, um, shoving the referee with two hands 
Now, the French Commission who look at these incidents met on the Thursday, the day after the game had happened, and they have provisionally suspended him. But they will look into this in more detail, and it's looking for all the world like uh, Gelson Martin's season could be over with a suspension of, you know, approaching six months. Um, and you think that might sound excessive, it might sound unfair, but messages have to be sent out if it's allowed on the big stage, that then filters down. I was listening to a podcast earlier um, this morning in the train and the way into work, and they were basically saying that if, if, if this goes um, unreprimanded, if this goes without punishment or without adequate punishment, it filters down to the lower leagues, and idiots um, think that it's acceptable to, to treat referees um, in that way. So it'll be interesting to see just how long that ban is. Um, I think it's fair to see that say that his season is over. Um, yeah, could have huge implications on his um, Euros chances. Yeah, uh, Portugal well, as well. Yeah, and Portugal have no shortage of, of options at the moment. But that's that's a topic for another podcast. Uh, guys, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you once again for your contributions. Thank you, Barlow, and thank you, Michael. Um, thank you to you, the listener, as well. We're delighted that you've tuned in. Hopefully you've learned a few more things today. And yeah, hope you listen next time as well.